0: It's stories like the one Violet read for us from Luke's gospel that convince me the church has done a good job of domesticating Jesus. As you heard, he was on the very edge of society when he engaged a naked, ranting man who lived in the cemetery, a, a man who often broke the chains and shackles that bound him to roam wild among the tombs, a man said to be possessed of demons. And on top of that, Jesus has left the borders of his own tribe and stepped into Gentile territory here. So, as this wild 2,000-year-old story has it, Jesus has stepped way out of bounds of acceptable tribal associations. But today, today, he resides in sparkling golden mosaics, in the very epicenter of successful resplendent propriety on Park Avenue, New York City. He's gone from the edge 2,000 years ago to the very center today, from the depths to the heights. It's a bit disorienting, actually. Although, walk by Christ Church any night this summer, and you may find our doorways and courtyard home to some homeless folks. Maybe they sense the hospitality of the man for whom this property has been named. Of course, over the years, we've learned that some of our near neighbors don't appreciate our namesake hospitality. That's the tension in the paradox of following the path of one who would just as soon hang out with the least, the last, and the lost instead of the high and the mighty. No question, we Christians at Christchurch, Christ Church, New York City, practice a dynamically paradoxical religion. We have inherited a wondrous temple, haven't we? Fashioned in the memory of a man who in his own day was deemed too radical for privileged society. In the last days of his life, he was tossed back and forth among the power brokers in the cultural and political epicenter of his day, ultimately sent out to the very edge of the city precincts where he was lifted high to die. Back then, that's where it was deemed he belonged, out on the garbage heap where the riffraff found their humiliating, tortured end. No question, Jesus was an edgy character, and he hung out with edgy characters. They were his people, so to speak. This story is jam-packed with rich details and prompts many questions that concern our human condition, including the matters of demons and sanity, mental health and healing, who's in, who's out, who's deemed appropriate, and so forth. For the moment, though, I, I want to stay with the simple fact that Jesus was often found engaging people who were on the edge of society, that he cared deeply about them, that he gave them his unqualified attention, and that his work and God's purposes came to life when he addressed himself to their needs. There is a very powerful humility in this, a humility that we've paradoxically elevated into exquisite beauty here, sparing no expense to do so, including locating this very temple on a rarefied piece of real estate that commercial brokers tell me is among the five most highly valued undeveloped locations in the city. I love that, that they think of it as an undeveloped opportunity. There is a great tension in this, if we can see the scale of the paradox as well as great responsibility. This tension and responsibility serve God's purposes if we let them. They keep us focused on what matters most of all and who God deems is part of the human community. No question, as the story is told, Jesus loved the crazed demoniac who lived in the cemetery at the edge of human society. When Jesus healed him, he told him to stay among his people with his family and live the truth that was now manifest in his life. Shift gears here with me for a minute. Among the many persons who quietly slipped away last year as pandemic swept through our nation was a man named Dick Hoyt, one half of what was known as Team Hoyt a father and son duo who together competed in marathon and triathlon races. Together they climbed mountains and once trekked 3,700 miles across the United States. For more than three decades, Dick pushed and pulled his son Rick across the country and over hundreds of finish lines. When Dick ran, Rick was in a wheelchair that Dick was pushing. When Dick cycled, Rick was in the seat pod from his wheelchair attached to the front of the bike. When Dick swam, Rick was in the small but firmly stabilized boat being pulled by Dick. At Rick's birth, the umbilical cord coiled around his neck and cut off oxygen to his brain. Dick and his wife Judy were told there would be no hope for their child's development. It was a story of exclusion ever since he was born dick said when he was eight months old the doctors told us we should just put him away he'd be a vegetable all his life that sort of thing the Hoyts brought rick home determined to raise him as normally as possible within five years two brothers were added to the family and dick and judy were convinced rick was just as bright as his siblings but schools disagreed Dick said that because Rick couldn't talk, they thought he would not be able to understand. But that wasn't true. We always wanted Rick included in everything. Eventually, engineers developed an interactive computer that would allow Rick to write out his thoughts using the slight head movements that he could manage. The family quickly learned that Rick loved sports. The first words he managed to type were, Go Bruins! Two years later, he told his father he wanted to participate in a five-mile benefit run for a local boy who had been paralyzed in an accident. Dick agreed, and though they finished next to last, that night, Rick reported he didn't feel handicapped when they were competing. This birthed Team Hoyt. Father and son began to compete in more and more events, but not without resistance. As Dick remembered, nobody wanted rick in a road race everybody looked at us nobody talked to us nobody wanted to have anything to do with us but attitudes began to change when they finished in the top quarter of the boston marathon and by 2016 get this the hoyts had competed in 1130 endurance events including 72 marathons and six Ironman triathlons. They had run the Boston Marathon 32 times. Their mutual inspiration for each other embraced many others. Many spectators and fellow competitors adopted Team Hoyt as a powerful example of determination. Most of all the Hoyts saw an impact from their efforts in the area of the handicapped and on public attitudes toward the physically and mentally challenged. That's the big thing, Dick had said. Rick helped many people cope with their struggle to be included. Ultimately, Rick finished high school and graduated from Boston University with a degree in special education. Rick is confident that his visibility and his father's dedication performed a forceful, valuable purpose in a world that's often divisive and exclusionary. Rick says, The message of Team Hoyt is that everybody should be included. Team Hoyt was a powerful exemplar of what embodied love looks like. I don't think it's much of a stretch to think of their work as a variation of the work the restored man in today's gospel lesson was admonished to accomplish, following his healing. Remember how Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much had been done for him. In that sense, he was asked to live the truth of it. That's how the story ended. Now, what had been done was a work of love. That's the sort of embodied love we are emblematically elevating into golden splendor here. And as we stay true to our purpose to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves, we also form a team that moves from our home base here at Park and 60th, physically and virtually, out into our families and places of employment, into the city, into the nation, into the world, and back again bearing a message of radical inclusion. I mean, how could it be otherwise if we follow Jesus' path? Inevitably, we'll find ourselves going where he goes, associating with the people he associates with, doing the sorts of things he does, proclaiming the kind of wisdom he proclaims, and forming the astonishing community he forms rooted in loving justice. Surely, if we stay true to this course, we will continually reach beyond our normal comfort zones. This is what led Paul to write to his friends in Galatia. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The immediate effect of following Jesus' way in the world was a radical inclusion of others who had been officially excluded. Boy, given all of the exclusionary tribalisms that continue to plague our culture, even, unfortunately, the culture of church. We can't be reminded enough of this truth. Jesus was a friend of the friendless, hope for the hopeless, willing to break the rules in order to love the loveless, which is an important message to hear on Juneteenth, in the middle of Pride Month, both cultural markers and reminders of our chronic problem with sectioning people into those who deserve God's acceptance and approval and those that don't. As Dick said about his son, Rick, it was a story of exclusion ever since he was born. Man, that sentence has so many unfortunate applications in our world. Friends, Our gospel of grace has something to say about that. Jesus has something to say about that. And this reveals a central tenet of what it means to be church in the 21st century, reclaiming the remarkable, stunningly spectacular revelation that all of us, all of us, share the same sacred genetics. Each and every last one of us, a beloved child of God.